0: Here we are, Sunday morning, I think. Still? Nope, after. Sunday afternoon? Well, technically, still Sunday morning, depending on that daylight savings time thing. I haven't figured that one out yet, but let's pray. And in the process of prayer, there's always uh, this idea of receiving. And, I, and again, I've done numerous different types of uh, teaching on prayer postures and how our body responds to the spiritual is really important. And today, if you want to join with me in this, I'm just going to ask you, if you want, you can. If you don't, I don't really care. It's up to you. But if you put your hands upwards, facing palms up, this is sort of like a representation, a symbol of receiving. And so I want to do a prayer before I get jumping into uh, Matthew chapter 13. And let's just receive from God today. So God of justice, God of peace and righteousness. My prayer is that uh, that, uh, we thank you for coming into our midst this morning. With our palms extended and our hearts open, I ask that you'd breathe your breath, your spirit of prophecy, your energy, your enlivening, your imagination on us and into us. God, wake us up. Open our eyes, unplug our ears that we might be able to hear, that we might be able to see, that we might be able to dream, that we might follow the ways of your extraordinary kingdom in our lives. And that's my prayer for all who sit here this morning in your name, amen. So today we're concluding our mini series on uh, on parables by the master storyteller, Jesus. That word parable, interesting, we get it from Scripture, but we, last week we looked at where we find it in our world. It comes from the combination of two simple Greek words, para, which means uh, beside, and balo, which means to cast or to throw. And so it means to cast beside or to throw beside. It doesn't mean that, you know, when Jesus was walking along, he was throwing parables along the road for anybody who would listen. Rather, this parable, this teaching style that he had, was throwing out, so to speak, this nugget of truth. Uh, great guy that I love in history, C.H. Dodd, pastor, theologian, he said this, and I love his definition. He goes, at, the, at its simplest, the parable is a metaphor or a simile drawn from nature or common life. And I love how he, I love this language. Arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its application to tease it into active thought. In other words, they make you think. And I love that. It makes you think. And and with truth, you know, maybe we can just accept it and move on with allowing truth to penetrate our hearts. You know, here, you need to believe here. Bang, 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 bang. A lineal type of learning. But a parable leaves you with sufficient doubt. Isn't that beautiful? About its meaning. It teases our mind into active thought. It is to get us thinking. That's the beauty of scripture. You just don't read it and, oh, it doesn't fit in. No, it gets you thinking. You have to wrestle with things now the truth is not always apparent with parables you know the disciples hey Jesus what are you like the disciples like what are you Jesus getting at we don't really understand it is this the point is this the point point? and with every single parable we are drawn into the story that's the point you're forced into the story and we have to ask ourselves who are we in the story where are we in the story And our mind now is forced into gear. We have to think. And and every time we're forced to think, that means we need to make a decision. And ultimately, the decision when it comes to parables, every time it regards back to Jesus in one way or another. We read the parables. Now, some ancient uh, Near Eastern teachers, their teachings can be separated from the person. But with Jesus, you can't do that. So about one third of everything he spoke was in the form of a parable, was in the form of a story. And so in order to understand Jesus, you have to understand the truth of the parable, the story. And and next week, we jump back into the narrative. We jump back into the story of Jesus. But right now, we conclude with, with what he was talking about. And what he's doing with his listeners, he's trying to engage their mind to think about it. He forces us to choose. He forces us to make a decision, to choose one way or another regarding about who Jesus is. Another person said it this way. Parables are not merely clever stories, but proclamations of the Gospels inviting a decision. We hear the story of Jesus. Now we need to make a decision. Where do we stand? And so the whole purpose of Jesus' parables and his stories is to bring us, the hearers, to a point of choice every time. Now think about that. Keep that with you. So why does Jesus speak in parables? Well, the short answer is he spoke in parables both to reveal and to conceal his identity. Uh, he spoke in parables to reveal his identity. First of all, Howard Hendricks, a great teacher, he, he once talked about it this way. He says, when you preach, especially to young children, make sure you put the cookies on the bottom shelf. A great illustration. In other words, Jesus took his teaching down to a level where, where people can grasp it. They understood it. They revealed Jesus in very simple terms uh, and terms that we follow. In other words, when he's teaching, he's got our attention. Stories do that, don't they? They keep your attention. They keep your interest all the way to the very end, to the conclusion of the story. That's why, you know, even when you're watching a bad movie, you ever watch a bad movie, but you still watch the movie to the very end? You just say, I just wasted an hour and a half, two hours of my life. It was a bad movie, but you still watched it to the very end. It's the same thing. We, we need to see how a story resolves itself. And so Jesus does that. He tells us a story. He puts the cookies on the bottom shelf, and, and that actually reveals who he is. And this is one of the reasons why earlier in Matthew, Matthew chapter 9, he says, He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus has this assumption that when he's teaching that there are people there who want to hear what he has to say. Now, some people in his audience were prepared. They were ready to listen. And, then, and part of the reason that he speaks in parables is to reveal himself. But part of the reason he speaks in parables as well is to conceal himself. Now that sounds harsh. It's a little hard to swallow, to be honest. But when a heart is prepared to hear a parable, or the truth, or the word of God, then for that person, Jesus is speaking in a way that they can understand. However, there are other people out there that Jesus was... Because not everybody followed Jesus. They had hard hearts, and for those people who have hard hearts, Jesus speaks in a parable to conceal who he is from their hard hearts, because they don't really care about the message. Now, if you have your Bible, open to Matthew 13, and and we're going to start at verse 44, and it's interesting that there are these two parables that, that will kick it right off. Now, that whole chapter 13 is all about parables. We just spent a number of weeks doing that, but Matthew is the only author in the Gospels who actually includes these two parables. And Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven. And so it's it's interesting. He says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then his joy went and sold all that he had to buy the field. I love it when people try to take parables and put them into a modern day translation. Watch your screens. Hello. <coughs> oh. Hello. Hello. Oh, you'd like I see this one? Ah, yes. Very nice music box. Very good eye. This is an excellent music box. That one's from Prussia. You like this one? Yes. All right, we'll wrap it for you. Thank you. Excuse me. May I see that one? This one? That one. I suppose. How much? Oh, I got that in a box of junk, take it. Oh, I'm sorry, it's not for sale. Thank you. here. I don't know. Sold. Thank you. Okay, so this is audience participation time so you can yell out your answers. What did you get from that? Nothing. Okay. Personal. It's personal. Memories are priceless. Memories are priceless. So in, in essence what you have here is a modern day depiction of this parable. Um, whether it's lame or not doesn't really matter at this point in time. But the idea of the memories are priceless. You can't recapture And so that's a modern interpretation. But yet when we look at the scripture, we see that Jesus is talking about a guy who's walking through a field. Now again, we don't know whether or not Uh, From the context of this parable, if the guy's trespassing or maybe he's taking a shortcut, we don't know what he's doing in the field. We don't know why he's digging in somebody's field. But nevertheless, he finds a treasure in a field that he doesn't own. And so instead of stealing the treasure, which many people might do, right, Uh, He puts it back. He covers it up. He basically says to himself, he says, I'm going to go and empty out my bank account. I'm going to go and put my tent on the market. I'm going to go sell my livestock and my donkey and everything else I have. I'm going to go purchase this land that I do not own because I know that there's a treasure that's hidden on that piece of land. And at the end of the day, the guy's actually left with nothing. But that's the point. He has nothing. He's given up everything Uh, He has for this treasure and maybe you saw it, you know, the joy that goes along with getting that treasure. And this is what happens. So, you know, today, you know, few people would ever think of burying their treasure in the field, obviously. Some maybe still do. But in ancient times, this was actually a common practice because, again, they really didn't have banks to secure their belongings. They buried their valuables to keep them safe, to keep them safe from thieves or from enemy forces every time the wars were coming in. And if a landowner would die during an invasion, then the treasure would remain often hidden until somebody, by pure luck, would stumble across it. So in ancient times, even if you were hired out as a laborer and you, were, you found treasure, let's say you were tilling some ground and you found buried treasure, uh, and if you uh, were to lift it out of the ground, it immediately became the, um, uh, p- p- the property of your employer. That's part of the law, ancient law. So upon finding the treasure in the parable, the person recognizes the value, He buries the treasure again. He goes, he sells everything he has, and he purchases the land. And since then, now he legally owns the land. He also now secures all rights to this hidden treasure. Now, Jewish law uh, states that if a man finds scattered fruit or money, it belongs to the finder. In other words, finders, keepers, losers, weepers. It goes way back to ancient times. You've heard that. You've done that. You've been the recipient of that, right? So, so the people listening to Jesus and, and saying this little parable would not have perceived that the man's actions were unethical. He, what he did was actually ethical. He had the right by law to what he found. And it's obvious that the treasure didn't belong to the man who owned the field. Are you tracking with me on that? Because if it did, the guy would have gone, he would have dug up the treasure before he sold the piece of ground. That's what he would have done. So really, the man who found the treasure is actually incredibly honest. And he did not have to buy the field. He could have just taken the treasure and run away. But he didn't. In fact, he didn't even use the treasure to provide enough money to make the purchase of the land. But instead, the scripture state he liquidated everything he owned to come up with the money. So he doesn't do anything unethical. And some people may hear this story and see what's going on. They just kind of shake their head. But this guy knew what he was doing. With his money, he would buy the field to get the treasure. But we need to be careful not to lose sight of the main point of the parable, which is this. A person found something so valuable that they sold everything they had to get it. That's the point. He's so excited about finding this treasure that he was willing to do whatever he had to do in order to purchase it. Now, The context. Remember, whenever we read scripture, context is really important. What's the context? Jesus is talking about how valuable the kingdom is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. He's basically saying the kingdom of God is so valuable that a person should give up everything necessary to be a part of it. And then we read, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away, he sold everything he had, and he bought it. The crazy thing about parables is, as Christians, sometimes we read this stuff, and we just don't even let the story. It's like, oh, that's a really nice story, Jesus. Like two lines, wow. Like, we don't even let it sink in. And yet, that's what Jesus is trying to do. And here in this one, we have a man's life was fixed on a Uh, definite object. The guy was a pearl hunter. He was a merchant. He knew his business. He didn't open a a shop and ask people to bring their pearls to him. Instead, he's the guy with the shrewd eye who goes out hunting for pearls, uh, things that will fetch him a large profit. And one day, he finds this pearl of great value. In one in which the wealthiest of buyers would vie for the ownership of that pearl. And this is a deal of a lifetime for this guy. And like a farmer, in, in the previous parable, it would be requiring him to sell off all of his possessions to attain such a rare and infinitely valuable pearl. We're not told how uh, that he attained the pearl to sell it and to make a profit. Instead... His delight was simply in possessing and keeping it. That's all he cared about. And it's funny because a pearl is an especially appropriate figure for the kingdom because it's the only gem that cannot be improved by man. All other jewels have to be cut. They have to be polished by, by skilled craftsmen and before they have this retail value of gemstones. But a pearl is perfect. And when it's found, it can't be improved by cutting and polishing it. In fact, one cut from a human hand and a pearl now is worthless. That, that makes the pearl an especially appropriate symbol for the kingdom of God. The, for the kingdom of God that Jesus is talking about is divine. It's designed by a perfect God from the beginning of eternity. And any attempts on the part of man to change or try to improve the kingdom actually robs it. Of its perfection. And so again, we have the same kernel of truth uh, around which this story is cast. This guy, as well, he's left with nothing. At the end of the day, he has emptied his account, his savings, his checking account, he's cashed in his RRSPs, he sold his donkey, his tent, and even everything else that he held, precious, like even his hockey card collection, is gone. Nothing is left, but all he has is a pearl. kingdom of heaven is like? Let me comment on that, that phrase, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, just for a moment. Because often in a parable, Jesus is describing a component of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. So, you know, what is this kingdom of which he speaks? And, and that's a great question. And first of all, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God are two different ways of saying the same thing. Now, there are theological differences and nuances because they're held by different writers. But Matthew uses the, the, and prefers to use the, the kingdom of heaven. And I don't have the time to break it all down theologically for everybody. But Matthew prefers one way. Other authors prefer to use the kingdom of God. In my opinion, for what we, we're going here, they're one and the same. But what is this kingdom? What is this precious? You with me? Yeah? This valuable kingdom that people would give up everything in order to acquire. The precious. So we even see the parables worked out in modern day culture. You know, is it a kingdom that's in the future? You know, something that we don't have a part of yet. You know, but as, as believers, as Christians, we're kind of hoping for and we're waiting for. Or is it a present reality? Is this kingdom here and now? Because when we look at scriptures, we see that the king has come Jesus the king has come I would answer that both are true you know there there is still for us a future kingdom when we read scriptures and we begin to understand our theology as Christians there is this future kingdom there is this uh, thousand year millennial reign of Jesus Christ where we the church believers will reign with him We don't talk about that much. Why? Because it kind of sounds kind of crazy. We don't want to sound crazy in our world, but we got to open the scriptures up and say, what is it talking about? You know, that we, the church, will reign with him. There are promises that were given to Israel in the Old Testament that still haven't been fulfilled yet and which will ultimately be fulfilled. There's this future kingdom with Jesus reigning. But there's also a present kingdom. And the kingdom has been, as we say, inaugurated already. It it, it finds its ultimate fulfillment in that thousand-year reign. But folks, the king has come. We celebrate it at our cultural Christmas time. Right. The king has come. He arrived in what we call the incarnation. That first advent. He already set his feet on the ground one time before some 2,000 years ago. King Jesus arrived. And and when he came into his ministry, we looked at this as we walked through the book of Matthew. He said what? The kingdom of God is upon you or the kingdom of God is near. He was talking to people. What he was saying is that I'm the king and the kingdom is wherever I am. And I've arrived now on earth. And in the first coming Of Jesus Christ, he launched that kingdom. And as believers, if you're a believer here this morning and you believe that Jesus died for your sins, you and I are members of that kingdom of heaven here on earth because why? We've pledged allegiance to the king. We've pledged allegiance that makes us members of our kingdom. We've invited him into our lives. We accepted his grace for for salvation. And so even here right now in this community of believers, we can say that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated on earth here with us because we are now, as scripture says, ambassadors of the king. We represent him where we go. We are his emissaries. And all that involves salvation. It involves a relationship with the king. It involves being uh, a a part of a believing community and being a part of his kingdom, which is ruled by the the sovereign king. That is what the kingdom of heaven is. That is what this hidden treasure is. That is what the pearl of great price is is they are valuable because they represent our salvation our very relationship with god through jesus christ the privilege we have of being members of this community for us it's salvation this thing that we call about so is a free gift it's completely free because it's a gift and it costs us nothing can i have my water please <coughs> This is my wife. She's a servant. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, thanks. That works too. Now, it's, it's interesting that it's free. But just because it did not cost me anything did not mean that it wasn't free. Are you tracking with me? Just because it did not cost me anything did not mean that it didn't cost someone Something Salvation, that's what we're talking about. And it's funny, because I'm reading on a biography of Martin Luther that's just fantastic, and how he went after the church, the religious elite, for certain teachings. And I, I can understand what was driving him crazy, but there are some days as a pastor, and this is my confession to you, that I wish our salvation was not free. Some days I wish that it did cost us something, that we would have to to give up something in order to enter a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because that way we would then know if there was a cost to this salvation thing, then we you know, we would know who really means it, if I can put it that way. Who, who's serious about the relationship with God and, and who is really just taking advantage of God or just being posers or lazy. Sorry for being so transparent. Then I got thinking that there are certain people that when they, in certain parts of our world, that when they do make a profession of Christ, it costs them everything. You know, and then I go back and I think, well, you know, we would know people's intention if salvation cost them something. You know, more people would potentially pass up the offer if it just costs something. And even more than that, it would remind us just because it's a free gift to us that it doesn't mean it's free. And we have to understand that it's not free. You know, it's funny because I would often joke with my kids when they're younger. Oh, this is free. This is free. I go, nothing's free. Oh you get a free, that's not free. Nothing's free. Our salvation is not free per se. Our salvation cost God and his only son as he watched his son dying on a cross for us. It's a free gift to you and to me, without question. Salvation, as we read in Scripture, is freely offered to us, but it was not free to God. It was not free to Jesus Christ. It cost them dearly. It was worth the Son of God to the Father. The question, again, that we ask when we look at parables is, what's it worth to you? You didn't have to pay. You don't have to go and sell out everything. You don't have to sell all that you own and to be left with only salvation. But what's it worth to you as a believer? And out of gratefulness and a grateful response to this free gift, this gift of salvation, this understanding that Jesus loves me, this I know, what's it worth to you? You know, on a separate note, anybody who has kids realizes their value to you is more than their price tag. Right? For me, four boys, I just want to say this. It cost us thousands of dollars just to get them out of the hospital. Oh, no, it didn't. Yeah, it did. It's called taxes. Our medical system is free. It still costs thousands of bucks just to get them out of the hospital. Well, you know what? We take that all for granted, don't we? And then, of course, it it just keeps occurring after you get them home and we're paying more and more and more and more and more and more and all the time. They keep eating more and more. You're going through diapers and you're going through food and then they get their driver's license. You're going through gas and then they have accidents and you're going through vehicles. Sorry, I'm venting. I don't know why. I don't know what's happening to me. And then they get married, right? And then you pay for their marriage and then they have grandkids. And then, of course, you pay for the grandkids because you want to pay more for the grandkids, right? Right? Right, come on. And then you get two living with you and they're not even thinking of getting married, but they're eating your food and they're driving your cars and they're wasting your gas. And then one of them says, I'm not leaving you. I need therapy. You know, we don't put, as parents, we don't put a value number to our kids. You know, how much money have I paid out for our kids? We, we could have retired. We should have said no children. Like, you know, we could have toured the world and had a great, you know, we still do tour the world, but we could have had a better time. You know? But no, no. Even if you figured it out, though. If you could actually figure it out, and you offered us that, depending on the day, maybe I wouldn't take it. <laughs> Depending on the child. I'm not quite sure. Okay. <laughs> oh, I love them. You know full well that there is no way that we would take that. As a matter of fact, as parents, you would li- literally hear me carefully die for your children if you had had to. And so salvation, when you think about it, salvation is this free gift. There's this price tag that says zero But the question you have to ask is, what is it worth to you? How much do we as believers treasure our salvation? Are we willing to give up everything for the kingdom of heaven? And the fact is that there are people in different countries that say yes, but are we willing to sell out everything for him? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, again, if you know of anything in regards to... Uh, his stance of faith during uh, Nazi-occupied Germany. Great scholar, great theologian, wrote in The Cost of Discipleship, he uh, contrasts costly grace and cheap grace, and he, he captures these two parables in this book. Listen to what he writes, or read along with me. He says, costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go sell all he has. It's the pearl of great price to buy for which the merchant will sell all his goods. It's the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. Remember that story. It's the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciples... It's costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. And above all, it's costly because it cost God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Salvation costs me nothing. But does that mean it's worth nothing to me? So, you know, here at Soul, Soul we have sung a song, and the one verse it goes, uh, or the chorus, I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon that cross. We actually usually sing it during a, a communion time, but it's putting us in the shoes of the Father just for a moment, just really to say, I'll never really un- uh, be able to comprehend, Father, how much it costs you. You know, and, and, and that's costly grace, to see your son upon the cross, to bearing, bearing the sin penalty so that you could scratch out the price tag and then give it to us freely. I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon that cross, to which I have to ask, what's it worth to you? If you're a believer here this morning, what's it worth to you? And again, the point of these last two parables is the value of being in the part of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is equally available to everybody. Everybody. And we should do everything possible to possess it and, and to bring others into it. That's the call of the believers. This is what the parable does It's a story. Jesus could simply tell us that simple nugget of truth in one or two sentences. But no, he, he gets creative. And that's the master story. He creates a picture. And he puts it in story form. He casts it then out well, alongside like that kernel of truth. And now it's amplified. Why? Because you either turn, turn it off or you turn it on. And you begin to think it through. And it forces us now as we begin to think of what is Jesus saying to us. It makes us make a decision right now. What are we going to do with Jesus? what do we do with jesus and what's it worth to you matthew 18 or 13 continues verse 47 says jesus continues once again he goes on he's not done with these parables he goes once again the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish now listen to the story When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on shore. They sat down and collected the the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. Now, that's a nice parable, but he keeps going. And this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into a blazing furnace, where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Interesting, Jesus is talking about this, this place that we have designated as hell, but we don't like to talk about it in church, and we don't want to talk about it because, you know, they've got these street preachers who talk about hell, and they, they turn us off from Christianity, they turn us off from religion, but yet Jesus is talking about something that is coming. So what do you do with that? You know, the parable actually changes direction when we're looking at it. So when you're reading all of Matthew 13, this changes direction. And instead of focusing on the value of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven is like, Jesus turns his focus onto consequences of either accepting or rejecting, interesting enough, this gift of salvation. And the kingdom of heaven is like this net that was let down and caught all kinds of fish. And again, in Jesus' day, they used a number of different kinds of nets. One was more like this wall kind where they just drag. It was a drag net, and that's literally what they would do. And they would take this net, they would make this wall, you know, wall within the water, and they would drag everything ashore. And once on land, they would separate the good from the bad fish. You know, stuff that was ceremonial ceremonially clean what was unclean what's fit to eat what's not some would go in the garbage some would go back into the lake maybe it was too young let's put it back in and Jesus uses this metaphor to describe how it's going to be at the end times interesting he says that the angels will separate all the people everywhere those who lived evil lives and those and who have not repented right those who have not sought divine forgiveness will be thrown into a blazing furnace That's a harsh story. But who's, who's the voice? And then you have those who are, have been accepted, his, his, those who have accepted his gracious, gracious gift of salvation, and they will spend an eternity with God in heaven. Yeah, we like that part, but we don't like the previous. So the question now comes down, what does the kingdom of heaven mean to you? You know, we, we've we all been given but one life to live. That, that's for sure. The treasure set before you today is more precious than either gold or silver. It's called the kingdom of God. Jesus pours it out before us. So what will you do now that you have found it? Will you be like the poor farmer or this rich merchant and sell off your love of this world to embrace it? Or will you bury it, never to search for it again? Your answer, actually, to these questions Matter if one rejects God in this lifetime, because if we reject God in this lifetime, according to this parable, he will reject us for an eternity. Now, that brings a whole lot of different interesting theological questions that we can bring. But I think it's a final fact that we have to look at and we have to begin to deal with. So what must one do to make the right choice and be open to God's gracious gift of salvation? And again, when we look at it, when we look at the teachings, all one has to do is ask God for forgiveness and have faith in in the sacrifice of Jesus. And, And if you've already made that choice, then out of a love for God, you need to please show your kingdom treasure to anybody else because time is running out. You know, the coming of God's kingdom is compared to the casting of a net. You know, when we read Matthew 13, it's Jesus himself who sowed the good seed in the earlier parable in verses 37. It would appear that here he's the one who is the net in the water, and the sea represents the world, just as in the earlier parable Jesus states in Matthew 13, 38, that the field is the world. Now again, if you've missed the series on the parables, you need to go back and listen to what the other two Jordans have talked about. Because when when these when Jesus spoke these words, there there are thought to have been about 54 different types of fish in the Sea of Galilee. But what Jesus is saying is that they re- represent all people, both the good and the bad. And they're both called, they're all called forth for judgment at the end of the world. And it's interesting, it's the fisherman's task you know, is to separate the the wicked from the just. These bad fish are cast aside, perhaps even cast back into the sea. But at the final judgment, the wicked are cast into the furnace of fire. Or Jesus says with his own words, where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is an interesting breakdown that I don't have time for today. And this parable illustrates the, The believer's responsibility, if you identify as a believer and a follower of Christ, then our responsibility to spread the good news of Jesus without any discrimination. And we bring as many as we can, and I love this, we bring as many as we can into the kingdom. And you know what? Let God sort it out. And the parable of the net is a warning to the wicked that, look, judgment is coming. But it's also a warning to us as believers that we have a responsibility. And after presenting his disciples with all these parables, it's funny because he's walking with the disciples. And he turns around and he asks them a question. He goes, do you guys understand everything I'm saying to you? To which the answer in the affirmative, which blows my mind. Because they're not always the sharpest tools in the shed. But they get it. Why? Because they're understanding. They were, they were eager to hear the truth. And then he, go, then he says, therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven... Is like the owner, of, now it's another parable, sort of, is like an owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. What are you saying, Jesus? Well, he's basically saying that the teachers of the law who have become a disciple of the kingdom, he's talking to the disciples, he's going, you guys are now teachers, you guys are now imparted, you guys now know the scriptures, you now know the gospel, you now have a message to take everything out and begin to place it before people. And it's important that we as believers in our lives do the same, that we apply the word of God in our lives, and that as our knowledge of the Bible grows, we make an effort to understand what the application it has for ourselves, but we pass. that on, and we engage our minds, and to grapple with the truth, and to see what God is saying to us today, and it's a living word, it's not some dead letter, that's not what the scriptures are, it's not just a little story, it's the living word, and here the disciples are being instructed that in the kingdom of heaven, that by Jesus himself, it's your calling to convey the message to others. You bring forth that new treasure of the gospel, this new message of Jesus, but don't fail to apply the truths found in the writings of the Old Testament. And you think Jesus is done, but he's not because the scriptures go on. It says when he had finished these parables, he moved on from there. So he's walking and it says he's coming into his own hometown. He began teaching the people in their synagogue. Now this is his hometown. And they were amazed. They're amazed. They start asking questions. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? So he's standing out. He's got miraculous powers. They know that. He's got some incredible wisdom. They see that. And then they ask this question. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all of his sisters with us? Now, you see what Scripture is saying here? Because I need to stop. I need to pause here for a moment because there is some teaching in some Christian circles that says that Jesus was an only child and that Mary didn't have sex after Jesus was born. Thus, there were no other siblings. Are you tracking with me? Do I need to read this passage of Scripture over again? That Jesus' own town affirmed the fact that he had brothers and sisters, that life went on, that he was a family guy, he was part of this community, that his dad was a carpenter, that he was probably a carpenter himself. Anyway, the scripture continues, he says, Where then did this man get all these things? They asked, and they took offense at him. <laughs> really? The guy's full of wisdom, does miracles. And now they're offended. But Jesus said to them, "Prophets, not honor without honor except in his own town and in his own home." In other words, you know, this is where I live and breathe, and I, I, I get no respect." And he didn't do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. It's one of the last times we see Jesus te- teaching in his home synagogue, in his hometown. Remember, Matthew 13 is a, a pivotal change in what's happening. He begins to turn his eyes towards Jerusalem. And the people there, they're astonished, but they remain unchanged in their heart. This whole familiarity breeds contempt. And now they're offended. Look how easily these people are offended. Why? Because he's special. Because he does miracles. Because he has wisdom. So now isn't it just a carpenter? So no, they're offended because God is using this guy. And it's amazing that those who are eyewitnesses, and I can't get my head around it to what Jesus was doing and teaching, they were so hardened in an unbelief. And it wasn't that they didn't know what to believe, but rather these people, his own hometown, refused to believe. And they didn't see any fruit of that. He refused to do miracles with them. And it's interesting that the miracles of, or the, the meaning of the parables in all of Matthew 13, again, take some time, read the entire chapter. All those parables, sorry, could be summed up in four words. Four simple words that what the kingdom of God is all about. And when you read those parables, you'll see that the kingdom of God about, is about planting, it's about growth, the kingdom of God is about value, and it's about Responsibility. The sower and the soils earlier in the beginning of the chapter, the wheat and the weeds it 's all about planting truth. You need to study that, you need to pour over that if you don 't have a Bible, talk to me i 'll put one in your hands before you walk out of here. The mustard seed and the yeast is all about growth, both rapid and eternal and dynamic growth. And if you don't want to read about this stuff, go back and watch the previous podcast. The hidden treasure and the pearl is all about value. And finally, our responsibility to get the message of the kingdom of God out to the world is exemplified in that parable of the net and this household. And it's our responsibility as believers. We have a responsibility. And with what we know, it's all about evaluation. Evangelism and edification, the building up of other people. Not the tearing down, not being critical and destructive, but building up and lifting up. And so it all comes back to you and to me when we begin to read and hear these parables. The question I ask is, Where are you in the story? And that, my friends, is where I want to leave you today. These parables illustrate believers' responsibility to spread. Jesus' message without discrimination. And honestly, I've been saying this for years. It starts with nine easy words. It's a simple question. Would you like to come to church with me? We tell and we bring as many people as we can into the kingdom, and I love it. We let God then sort it out in the end. And if we live according to the ethic of God, which is loving God, loving our neighbors as ourself, something that can only be done if we have God's resources as citizens of his kingdom. Because it's sometimes hard to love other people, is it not? But we need to build others up. We need to edify them. Because when we do that, we become the salt and light that Jesus talked about earlier in Matthew. And others will now be attracted to what we have. And if we relate it back to that first parable of Matthew 13 of the sower, some are going to receive that seed with joy and and, and and trying to manufacture it on their own. But other people who receive this seed will be like good earth. And they will be able to understand and receive the message. And ultimately, they will grow and grow bear fruit. Now, people, I conclude this morning with, who are you in the story? Let's pray. Father, the seed of your kingdom is forever being sown into our lives and into our world, but it doesn't always take root, and sometimes it fails to find a place to grow, and so I pray today for ourselves and I pray for others that when life makes us hard and resistant, sort of like a well-worn path where old habits, old systems, old patterns of thinking, keep us from your message from growing in our lives. Father, come through our lives with a rototill and soften up the soil. For ourselves and for others when we become so immersed in our short-lived, shallow, rock-hiding soil of the moments where your life too easily gets blown away from the wind. For ourselves, Father, I pray for others when our fears, our insecurities, our desires, our self-absorption tangle like thorns around your grace and choke it into silence, just... Open our hearts to you. We give you thanks for the word that you hide like a treasure in our heart. For the yeast which is able to penetrate every area of our life. For the seed that's able to grow into a mighty plant. Help us to value that which you have given us. To make following Jesus the most important thing in our daily lives. To concentrate above all all upon doing your will and sharing your love and the good news that you have proclaimed through Jesus with one another and with the world in which you've placed us in. I give you thanks for the wonders of each heritage that is brought into this place, but also for the new things that you continue to do in our midst. And we praise you for the teachings of the prophets, for the law that you revealed to Moses, for the grace and love that you've poured out and continue to pour out through Jesus, and for the the guidance, God, for the strength, for the wisdom, for the peace, for the joy, for the patience, for the gentleness that you now pour upon us through your spirit. Help us to value both old and new and to become worthy teachers of the lessons of your kingdom. pray for the people around us today as we did earlier for those who are upon our hearts our minds because they have a need that only you can meet and with that god we just commit the rest of ourselves this day to you and this week will you please stand with me in ancient time the one who blessed extended his hands for a blessing those receiving blessing did likewise i want to leave you with a blessing if you choose to today and here it is Oh, so sanctuary, you are the body of Christ. So may you have a heart of Christ that's tender for mercy. May you have the eyes of Christ to see a world in need. And may you have the feet of Christ to bring good news to them. And so now as you leave, may you go in peace and may God go with you and may you go and now live the church. We'll see you next week.